Welcome to Listen Up People, a podcast of the USC Suzanne Dvorak Peck School of Social Work. I'm Dr. Annalisa Enrile, clinical professor, and today we will be discussing the issue of child trauma and its effects not just on the development of children, but how it shapes their future and can follow them throughout their lifetime. So most of what we hear in the media about child trauma is usually following a major tragic event like a mass shooting or an environmental catastrophe, an earthquake or a flood. But there are children in this country who experience traumatic events or circumstances as part of their daily life. And this is what we don't hear about on a regular basis. There's whole communities where children are exposed to constant negativity, fear, and violence. How can we expect a child or young adult to focus on their future when they aren't sure how they will make it through the next day? So today we are going to open the floodgates on this issue and I am joined by two women who are creating change in this area. My esteemed colleague, Dr. Marlene Wong, the David Lawrence Stein Violet Goldberg Sachs Endowed Professor of Mental Health, whose extensive work and research on the subject of child trauma has led to the development of many evidence-based programs and interventions. We are also joined in the studio today by Megan Healy, who is an emergency response social worker with the Department of Children and Family Services in Los Angeles. And she's part also of the MART team, multi-agency response team, which is a specialized unit that responds to law enforcement related calls that involve children in potentially traumatic situations. Why don't we start there, Megan? Can you tell us a little bit about what the MART team is? Just because I think a lot of people haven't had any experience with that. So the MART team is a specialized unit inside of DCFS emergency response, and we work primarily with law enforcement. It was created um, over 10 years ago in order to help respond to drug-exposed children because they were finding there was a lot of times in which law enforcement would go out to a house that might have a drug lab or other narcotics seized, and because of their investigation and everything else, children weren't being their safety wasn't being insured. So they decided to create a team that would go out with law enforcement that would kind of work alongside, have our own separate investigations inside the child abuse and be able to protect the children as well as allow law enforcement to do their jobs. So when you say to go out with law enforcement, you are actually on the scene going out with them, you know, vested up? Yes, uh, I have my own vest. I will respond with all kinds of law enforcement from local law enforcement, local PD, sheriff, federal, all of those different kinds, and a lot of times also on multi-agency response teams, much like our name. And we will go out when they're having large-scale ops or even smaller ops. Last week I responded to two different operations, um, one of which was small-scale probation, the other which was large-scale, and I'm actually in the lineup as they're going towards the door. I stay behind until they note a child abuse concern. However, I am there on the scene immediately able to engage and respond. Are there any situations you could share with us of these types of experiences that may be potentially traumatic and, and, and why it's so important to have social workers as part of that team? It's really important to have social workers as part of that team to help bring a trauma-informed lens to the whole entire investigation. It also ensures that children are not being left behind in potentially dangerous and life-threatening situations. Most recently, I was out with a probation compliance team. They go out and they check on houses and 
there was kids in a house and there were uh, child safety issues raised. And instead of me being called later to come back to the scene when everything could have been removed and stories could have been changed, I was there at the time that they were found to be able to assess and ensure the children's safety from point zero, basically. I, I want to come back to that because I think that having a social worker on site from the beginning really kind of changes the perspective, not just of what is happening at that moment, but of how the children will be given treatment and how we will care for them afterwards. Before we get too deep into that, I want to turn to Marlene and to have you kind of just give us the baseline of what is our working definition of when we talk about child trauma. I think it's become a really big buzzword, but I don't think a lot of people really understand what it means. Well, trauma has become a far more complex term as brain science has developed because it's shown that it's not just psychological or emotional, but that it's a reaction that involves every system of the body. It's neurobiological and it involves brain hormones that are released. Trauma symptoms can be contradictory. They can emerge, disappear, reemerge, be delayed, but it usually is associated with a real experience, not just one that somebody has read about or one that someone has seen on a screen in a movie, but a real experience that involves life threat. And the three symptom clusters involves re-experiencing the event over and over again, which many people call flashbacks. And it involves avoidance as well. So on the one hand, here's an individual who has no control over mm -hmm. thinking about it, uh, and yet fighting desperately to avoid thinking about it, being a victim of people who are reminders, places, smells, mm -hmm. all the things, the senses of the body, that when they encounter these experiences are reminders and places them right back into the experience mm -hmm. as though it were happening again. Mm -hmm. Their reactions can be one of intense horror or intense fear, but okay. it reminds them of the original trauma. How are these symptoms that you've shared with us, how do they express themselves in children, especially even with the children that Megan is seeing? In children, I think we have to look at developmental factors. Ariel Shalev in Israel did some research on children who had not yet developed language, and he showed that there were changes in the DNA. Oh. So the earlier the traumatic injury, probably the more complex and injurious the trauma experience can be. In preschool, early elementary, there are regressive symptoms. Also in school-aged kids, they are at a loss as to what they most recently learned. So oh, for, a, for instance, a, a child can learn long division. Let's give a really concrete yeah. example. The trauma occurred, and now they can't remember how to do long division because these symptoms interfere with the brain's ability to take in information and synthesize it with what they already know and feel. Because it's a different part of the brain that is operating when a child is traumatized. It is the survival piece of the brain. And when there isn't a full sort of array of options in terms of coping, because they're still in a learning situation, mm -hmm. you really see children being unable to move forward academically. And you see kids who feel like they're crazy yeah, because mm -hmm. they can't sleep, they can't eat, they can't mm -hmm. think, they can't and they stop going to school, and there are gender differences. So mm -hmm. you can see in boys, there's a, t a more of an association with aggression and, mm -hmm. and violence, and with the girls, it's withdrawal. 
And I'm assuming, you know, as you're talking about that, these actual biological changes that happen to children, but how that begins to express themselves and how do teachers, you know, who may not be given this lens or this knowledge, how do they become kind of on the our frontline identifiers and raise the flag because I know with social work we have a particular lens we really try to um, instill this in our students no matter where they go out into the world to be a social worker but what about the other areas in the world where kids are expressing this and that person may not have that training or that lens well, you know, I've been in a research partnership with RAND Health for over 20 years, and your question speaks directly to what our research found. We were looking at zip codes in LA Unified School District that had the highest rates of crime, gang activity, poverty, and what we discovered is that those zip codes have also higher rates of violence exposure. So we looked at children across LAUSD, and we found that in those zip codes with, with those factors, socioeconomic factors, that 88 to 92% of 11-year-olds had been hit, kicked, punched, or threatened with a gun or knife in their communities. And this was just outside the home. We did not ask questions about inside the home. What we discovered is that 27% of of those kids, of the 92% that had been exposed to violence, had high levels of clinical PTSD. And not one referral had been made by a teacher or a parent. And what we surmised when we began to interview these teachers and these parents is that they didn't know what PTSD was, and Mm -hmm. they never imagined that PTSD could occur at these rates to their children. Mm -hmm. Do you see, um, Megan, that reflected in what you're seeing in the field, and particularly the calls and where you're being called out to? Uh, Definitely. And also, before I was a MART team, I was a regional emergency response social worker, so I was responding to also the calls that would come in from teachers or therapists. And we definitely see the situations where kids who come from violent home lives or surrounding areas, how trauma affects them, not just in one area, but in all areas, including peer relationships, school, work, functioning. And teachers, I think, are becoming more aware of this situation because we're getting more calls from teachers stating this kid wasn't aggressive before, they're now aggressive. I'm concerned about what might be happening in the home. They're very specific in their targeting. I want to just play devil's advocate for a second here because I think that there's certain sensitivities around, you know, Marlene, you talked about these studies that can link living in a particular zip code or a type of neighborhood to, you know, higher rates of trauma and, and, and exposure to violence. Does that increase maybe stigma around those communities in those areas and maybe does it also increase resistance to getting help because they don't want to say you know this is what's happening here they don't want to be known for maybe something that they are kind of trying to sweep under the rug just because they don't want to be profiled as being a community yeah i I think that's certainly a factor but it also operates in other ways in which parents who have lived there for generations might say yeah so what that's Mm -hmm. that's how it is around here I grew up in that. I turned out fine. So they're going to be okay. Like, what's the big deal? But you could see that when you look at academic progress, Mm -hmm. test scores, grades, graduation rates, dropout rates, there are still just extremely high rates of what we associate with school failure. I don't think there's any blame here that's being assigned to anyone, but the reality of living in an environment where people do not feel safe. Mm -hmm. And uh, it also speaks to social justice issues like policing. That's right. So why is it that some parts of the city there are no homicides or unsolved homicides, Mm -hmm. and in places like South L.A. and East L.A., there are just, you know, percentages off the charts of unsolved homicides. 
um, I think it's a question we have to ask ourselves in terms of just equity. I mean, and speaking of equity, there is, uh, you're the subject matter expert for an ongoing lawsuit against the Compton Unified School District for their failure to provide trauma-informed services. Can you share a little bit um, of what's going on in that case, um, the role of why it's so important to have these services in schools? Well, I'm first of all, I'm very happy to do so because at this point in my career, I'm just so pleased to be able to come back around and and be involved with partners in the community, with, with lawyers who are public interest lawyers. Mm-hmm. All of our work is pro bono, and we're really addressing the issues that have gone on for too long. And I think that the... Um, person who spoke best to it is is Peter P and he is the main he's the first plaintiff in the mm-hmm. lawsuit and Peter's story is not an unusual one he was a client in DCFS his mother was drug involved seriously drug involved he was physically and sexually abused by his mother's mm-hmm. boyfriends before he was 4 years old she tried to do the best she could for him could not do that he was taken uh, out of her custody over the years when he first entered kindergarten at four or five, he already had all the symptoms we talked about, you Mm -hmm. know, just acting out, aggression. As you can imagine, a Mm four-year-old who had been sexually abused, and the response of the school district was, move him to another class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not, what's happened to this Mm -hmm. little boy? What, What is it that a little boy at four years old would be so hurtful to others? This continued throughout his time, only in one school district, which was Compton Unified. He was expelled, he was suspended, he was moved to every school in the district, he was uh, placed with an adoptive mm-hmm. mother, mm-hmm. she died. Yeah. I mean, it, it's all the things that can That's happen right. in a community where there is, is poverty. Uh-huh. And ultimately, you know, this continued till he got into high school and he just, he was homeless. He had been seeing people killed in the streets and finally yeah. he got, he, he was homeless and he decided, I found the place where I could be safe, and it was on the roof of one of the Compton Unified School District's cafeterias. Okay. So he was sleeping in the cafeteria. They found him, and instead of applying McKinney-Vento, which is a federal law that provides resources, Mm -hmm. and I'm talking about money, programs, assistance with finding living, they had him arrested for trespassing. Wow. That's the story of Peter P. And there are multiple other plaintiffs, including teachers, mm-hmm. who talked about their experiences mm-hmm. with violence and how the school district just did not provide the services that were needed. And it is under the civil rights law of IDEA, which is that every student has the right to a free and appropriate education. And that includes designated instructional services and counseling to support that child in his or her progress academically. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, and I think one of the things that we're learning with the kids now more and more is that when they're in violent situations or when they're constantly fighting for their lives, their brain no longer allows them to relax or go into a relaxed state, and that's where they need to be to be able to learn and be able to be kids. So they're constantly going from you know one situation to another where they're very stressed, very tense, and that does something to the chemicals in their body and their brain that doesn't allow them to function at the rate of every other student in the room. What's been the response? I'm, I'm curious of not just Compton Unified School District, but also of the community in general regarding this case. And, and how has it kind of helped or hurt the, the whole notion of, or push for trauma-informed care in the schools? Well, first of all, I just want to say that Compton Unified is not unusual, but it was selected not by me, but by the attorneys because it was situated 
in a place where all of those risk factors were Mm -hmm. at play. But there are many school districts Mm -hmm. who are reacting in much the same way. So on the one hand, there's been pushback, of course, from schools who say we can't do one more thing. But on the other side, uh, on the day that this was filed, it was one of the number one news stories that was sent out by the U.S. Department of Ed as a sort of a flagship action to all school districts in the United States. Pay attention to this. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really, this happened in 2015. I think since then, trauma-informed schools has blossomed into a real movement. And that schools on their own are saying, we have children just like that. Now what can we do? Um, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit because I want to get more into the experiences that, you know, that we've had um, in the field. You know, Marlene, earlier you talked about how this really changes everything for children from the biological to the socioeconomic um, and their emotional um, perspectives. How does this play out across a lifetime? I think we, we also have the benefit now of the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which was done on you know thousands of middle-class Caucasian Americans yeah. in the San Diego, La Jolla area. And uh, what it showed was that there were many medical conditions that are actually associated with early childhood traumas. And the way it came about was that um, Dr. Felitti, who's one of the principal investigators, saw that in particular, a woman, just one example, who was um, obese, did very well by losing weight. And then subsequently, she gained all the weight back. And he said, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like, has, your, has anything in your situation changed? Mm-hmm. And she was still living in her home. She had a very nice home in the La Jolla area. Her relationship seemed to be okay. Nothing had changed. But she began to talk about, over time, her early experience with sexual abuse and incest. Mm -hmm. And this weight was protection for her. Mm -hmm. It was a way that she protected herself from just the thought that that could happen again. Mm -hmm. So when they dove deeper into this, looking at many health conditions, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, substance abuse, they found high associations with early childhood experiences with physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, exposure to domestic violence, mental illness of a parent, separation or divorce of a parent, or someone incarcerated, a a primary caretaker. I mean, I think that's such an important point you're making because this kind of everyday stressor that kids are going through and how it's showing up you know, in their health, even far later on into their adulthood. Megan, I know you do work around children that are commercially sexually exploited. How do you see early childhood trauma within those victims and survivors that you were working with? So one aspect of my job is working with the first responder protocol. And what that means is when law enforcement comes into contact with a youth that's being exploited, we get contacted and we provide emergency response and emergency interventions. We also go along with other organizations who help provide other services as well to help assist the youth along the way. One of the things that we're finding more and more is that these children that are being sexually exploited have uh, there's a rate of, I believe, 90% have a history of child abuse and neglect. And more more than not, it's sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Whether it's sexual abuse by someone they know or by someone they didn't know, 
that trauma leaves them open to being exploited in the future. And a lot of times these exploiters from, there's different kinds of exploiters from gorilla pimps to Romeo pimps. They kind of are able to identify that in these youth who are very open and they're usually much more likely to be re-traumatized and they kind of utilize that. So, you know, Marlene, this kind of piece that Megan's raised around vulnerability, especially young girls' vulnerability uh, to being pulled into the sex industry and be commercially sexually exploited by gorilla pimps who are pimps who do it by force and Romeo pimps who are pimps that do it by convincing convincing the girls that they love them, they want a relationship, etc. How do these vulnerabilities occur through trauma, or, or what are some of the what are some of the things? I know you talked about how health is affected but you know just their formation of relationships their kind of psychosocial well-being we're really seeing that expressed in this particular population i think there are cumulative effects that we haven't talked about where these vulnerable children then are exposed to a number of other risk factors and continue to be exposed to these risk factors and and what happens is that they never really have the opportunity to develop positive coping skills or positive relationships with other folks. And it pushes them farther and farther into this really deep and dark place in their lives where if they have up to four adverse childhood experiences and they're in a toxic environment, it places them at high risk. And they are 3,000 times, 3,000% more at risk for suicide, 3,000 times. So what do we do? That it really underscores the importance of the Department of Children and Family Services and what their mission is, which is to provide early intervention and to stop this cycle. And that's why social workers are important. And I think society doesn't recognize that. They don't really understand the uh, damage that can be done to children. I don't think that our society has recognized how domestic violence affects uh, development, early childhood development. We know with child, like in DCFS, we know one of the most dangerous things to a mother and her children is her partner. When it comes to domestic violence, mental health, drug abuse, that's what harms the children and the the parent, the significant other. I mean, there's plenty of times where I've responded to a scene where a partner has killed their partner in front of the children. When you were both talking, it just dawned on me, you know, there's this really heinous, like, um, statistic that is always in my head um, because it reminds me that when we talk about sex trafficking, particularly um, sex trafficking of minors, that, you know, we always have to think about, to me, is the demand, right? Because this wouldn't exist, right, without the demand. You know, like 87% of purchasers of sex are men that are in committed or married relationships. And so when you talk about thinking about the partners in in those households, I just think about, no, we have to think about it in society kind of as a whole. You know, we walk into these households and say there's one parent and then a partner and then the partner's the one that's dangerous for the kids and the, the parent. We want the parent to leave that partner and we expect them to do it the moment we walk in that front door because we want it for the kids to be safe. And we're now understanding that that's kind of a crazy request because we're learning what that parent, that the connections and the bonds the parent have with that partner. 
we're learning that there's more going on and that the parent probably had trauma in their past that went unresolved, went untreated, that has now led them to the relationship, their coping, their parenting that we see today. So we're learning more as a department how we can treat the whole family. We're there to assess for the safety and neglect of the children. However, we're there to create a better and safer family life. And so we're going to treat the whole family. We have things now called child and family teams where we're going in and we're meeting with everyone to really address the goals and really see the background instead of just what's at present. We need to see the background. So we've been talking about all this and as we kind of drill down to these different ecosystems, you know, as both of you have said, there are definitely ecosystems of trauma. What support that, what start that, and hopefully what solves for that. What are the kind of areas in the ecosystem that we could lean on to make the biggest impact? You know, I, I've spent many years in this in this research partnership with Rand, and and we've seen that our interventions, and and the things that we have uh, researched and and provided information about have been disseminated across the country. But increasingly, I've turned to my partners in public uh, interest law, and I think we have a lot to contribute. Social workers have a lot to contribute when we observe systems that are damaging to children. And the most recent example of that was the separation of, of children from their parents. That's right. Of parents who were uh, detained at the border. And children who were infants and, you know, little, little children as well as older teenagers who were unaccompanied. That was just the most egregious maltreatment of children that our government could have imposed on families. Yes, I mean, I definitely agree. It's it's a really hard situation to look at as a social worker who has to rely on utilizing the removal of children from their families as a last result in order to completely protect the children from whatever environment they're in and then seeing something whereas our government is just removing kids from their parents when there's no real safety situations, more or less, they're just arresting the parent for crossing the border. And then we see the situations where these kids are being kept. I know there are some concerns about the photos being old or from different detention sites, but the kids are not being kept. They're not being put in homes of loving parents in the time between them being reunited with their parents. And we know that's a traumatic situation, as well as they're coming in with the fact that they probably don't speak the language. They don't know what's going on. This is a new environment for them. So they're having even more traumas inflicted upon them. And then we're just all of us going to put them back and say, okay, you're fine and be gone. I don't know what kind of treatments our government is going to give to these children and these families in order to ensure that they don't have long-lasting effects from the trauma. And what was, I mean, Mar you talked earlier, Marlene, about the role of social workers. What it, there was some immense number, I don't know if you know what it is, of how many social workers are needed to, you know, even just do intakes, right, mm -hmm. for these children. And that's just at the beginning of the process. In the complaints and injunctions that were filed by public counsel, of which I was part as a subject matter expert, one of the difficulties is how many social workers are needed because they don't know where the kids are. Yeah. There was no plan here. They simply separated them and warehoused them. And then when there was available foster parents in that community, possibly mm -hmm. they placed them, and then they couldn't track them. Right. So it is. it was not planned from the beginning. I mean, it was just arrest these children, put them in a detention center with people who were not trained, had no knowledge of developmental needs, were not prepared to feed them, to house them, to clothe them, so that the stories that came out were there wasn't even enough room to sleep. They would have yeah. to take right. turns on the floor, you know, on a concrete floor, and, you know, some would have to sit up and some would be able to lie down. So the idea of what is needed 
is compounded by the total lack of thought that was taken. They're criminals. Throw them in a warehouse and their children. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just seems like now more than ever, given these policies and our current uh, political environment, that social workers are needed more than ever in so many different facets. I mean, when I hear the both of you talk, I you know hear it from research to practice, but also from activists to kind of frontline in terms of policy decisions being made. We've talked a lot about trauma, but I kind of also want to just touch base with you on the notion of resilience, because you know we've been talking about these children that face these types of traumatic experiences day in and day out, and they do survive. So what kind of role do you see resilience playing, and, and can you talk about that relation to trauma and how we might incorporate that into our interventions? Resiliency plays a huge role with our youth that we come in contact with every day. And, you know, if they have that drive and that willingness, hopefully we can give them the other tools, including mental health services, assistance with schools, linkages to job training and the such so that we can help to promote them so they can be successful. Right now, everybody's looking at trying to break the cycle of the trauma and the neglect and the abuse. And we're trying to stop it, but without being able to give everybody other ways to relate to their life and their circumstances, we won't be successful. Resiliency is extremely important because without that, we can't help to motivate them through. That's not the only factor. First of all, risk factors are not predictive factors Mm. because of protective factors. And social workers are the biggest army of protective factors that exist in this country. 68% of all counseling that is done by licensed providers in the U.S. are done by clinical social workers. And the needs of the people in our country, well, on the one hand, perhaps we could say that economically in general, that our country is doing well. When we take a deeper look at the relationships of individuals within families one to another, or the relationships of children in schools, or the relationship of domestic partners, or the ways in which our economy, the underbelly of our economy thrives, we begin to see that there is there is threat, yeah. there is peril, there's danger, especially for children who are the mm-hmm. most vulnerable. I think that both of you have really talked about why we have trauma and these different risks and adverse experiences, but how do we use what we know about that to get to a deeper level of addressing um, and, and stopping these issues and also helping children that have already had these experiences? How do we get to kind of systemic change? I think one of the most important things right now with enacting the systemic change is that everyone that kind of are perpetuating the trauma, they're understanding that there's other things at play instead of just maybe someone hitting their kid. They're understanding that their childhood could have played a role, their mental health, their drug use, their domestic violence all plays a role in the trauma that is creating in the children. And I think the awareness piece that has really come about since like the 90s with domestic violence is really helping to enact the change on the inner home family level. Really? <laughs> Easy question. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I think, I think social workers in every job, in every place that they are, have a role to play in change. And Megan's right, at the level at which you intervene in someone's home, that education about 
how their behavior, how they understand themselves and what Mm -hmm. contributes to their behavior, that they need to be more aware of that and be able to to heal themselves. I mean, this is about healing in every way, Mm -hmm. healing at at the individual level, healing at the family level, um, supporting organizations like DCFS and understanding that uh, without funding, they cannot continue. Without funding, schools cannot always provide. Mm -hmm. One of the great things that I've been able to see now after almost a 50-year career in Mm -hmm. social work, I was asked to be um, on the Blue Ribbon panel for school safety that was organized by uh, Mike Fewer, the city attorney. And one of the recommendations for school safety and child trauma was a social worker in every school. That's a policy suggestion. There also has to be laws that support this and and enforcement of those laws, like McKinney-Vento. And, and then, of course, there, has to, there often has to be public law mm-hmm. because without that, we can't change or support the laws that are already in place. Mm-hmm. I love the work that, that public law advocates are doing on behalf of vulnerable children and families. I want to just thank you both in, in general for just being with us today um, and really helping us understand this issue at a deeper level um, and from so many different perspectives. If you have any further questions about our guests on the show today or you just want to talk further about child trauma, we'd love to hear from you at listenuppeople at usc.edu. And you can find an extended version of this podcast and of all our episodes at dvorakpeck.usc.edu slash listenup. Thank you so much for joining us today.